right. Well, for those of you who don't know, just to clarify something, Judah is my son, Robin is my wife. I wasn't, I don't call out random parents in the middle of the service. Um, so <laughs> he thinks he lives here because he's here so much. So he just thinks, oh, cool, I'll just go do whatever I want. So we have to correct that sometimes. Um, all right, we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. Uh, talking about blasphemy, um, and we'll get to that. But, um, and, and this is it's connected, that blasphemy is something that really sets people off. But there's all kinds of things that, that set people off. And, and for oftentimes I've noticed that there are people that, that usually individually we have things that, that kind of set us off individually. We might say uh, triggered or like that. It's just like it, it really gets us, we get all worked up about something that, that other people don't care about. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't know what yours is, ask your spouse or, or a good friend because they know. They know what it is. For me, one of, the things, one of the things that I get really worked up about that I'm like, really sensitive about are, uh, are spoilers. Hate spoilers. I hate spoilers of all kinds, like TV show, movie, sports especially. Don't tell me the score. I'm going to watch it later, okay? Like, I just hate anything. I don't want to know anything. If I, so I've said that if, if I could, when I watch a, a TV show or a movie, I would like to not even know what it is. If you just think I would like it, put me in a room and then put it on. I don't want to know the title. I don't want to know who made it, who's in it. I, I don't want to know anything. And, and most of the time, in my opinion, when someone comes up to you and goes like, oh, have you seen this movie? And you say no, and they go, well, this isn't really a spoiler, but you're wrong. <laughs> it is. It is a spoiler. This famous, this came up recently in like a big, a big moment recently with my wife because we were about to watch a movie and she goes, and it was whatever time at night, so she's trying to determine, okay, how long is this going to be kind of thing. So, oh, well, this is good because this is only an hour and a half. And I said, boy, I wish I didn't know that. <laughs> and she said, the length of the movie is not a spoiler. And I said, to me it is. Okay. <laughs> so... So you should take notes for if you want, this is par partly to let everyone know, don't tell me stuff about movies, okay? Anyway, that's, that's for me. Um, what, the reason I bring that up is because Jesus is going to get set off in this passage. He's going to really like, the beginning of this, if you, if you got one of those red letter Bibles, if you look at this section, the beginning, like couple, little chunk is black. It's, it's, the, it's just the narration. And then the rest of it is red. Because it's like this thing happens and then Jesus is just set off and he's going to tear into these guys. Um, so we're going to get into that today. And it's surrounding blasphemy, which makes sense, doesn't it, that Jesus wouldn't like that. Uh, so let's look first at verses 22 through 30. Who's with me? Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons... By Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the power of God has come upon you. 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So we see first here a demon-oppressed man. There's a demon-oppressed man, and he can't, uh, due to his oppression, he can't speak or see. And Jesus heals this man. He, he, he casts out the demon, and all of a sudden this guy can see and he can speak again. And we've heard this before, right? We've heard this before. We've seen these happen before. We've seen Jesus heal people. We've seen Jesus cast out demons. We've seen it. Okay, what's the point? Let's move on. But again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. When we see this, look at what Matthew is highlighting here. Look at what Matthew wants us to see. <clears throat> and he moves so quickly past the instigating event here. He, he wants us to know the basics. Hey, this was a demon-oppressed man. He couldn't speak. He couldn't see. Jesus cast out the demon, which healed him. It was a secondary effect. But he cast out the demon, and all of a sudden this man could speak and see. But what we see is the reaction of the crowd and the reaction of the Pharisees. That's what, that's what Matthew wants us to focus on, is how does the crowd react, how do the Pharisees react, and then how does Jesus respond to their reaction? That's what we're being, is being highlighted in this passage. And so it tells us that the people were amazed. The crowd is blown away. Presumably, this is a man that they knew, right? This is in the community. Jesus is going from town to town doing these things. So if he's healing this man in this town, they would have known him. They would have known him maybe even before he was oppressed. Maybe he was a, a friendly guy, a nice guy in town. Maybe he had a market or something. He worked in the marketplace or something. And they would have known him, would have talked to him, would have seen him around town. And then they would have seen the effects of his oppression that all of a sudden he lost his sight, lost his ability to speak. And it was like, oh, this poor guy, he's over here. He can't do these things anymore. We used to know him. And now all of a sudden, boom, he can see, he can speak. They're blown away. They, they see that he has been lifted from this oppression by the power that Jesus had. And again, I think we can assume that people had tried to fix him. People had tried different things. They had gone to the... The, the Pharisees, they'd gone to the priests, they'd gone to these different people and, and tried to seek help and, they, and no one could help him. And now all of a sudden he is freed. So the crowd sees this and they say, can this be the son of David? And what they're saying is, is it possible that Jesus is the Messiah? Is, Jesus, is it possible that Jesus is the one that has been promised to us? That we, they knew the scriptures, they'd gone to, the, to hear the Pharisees in the synagogue, they'd gone to see the priests and make their sacrifices, they knew their history, they knew this is what we're waiting for, we're waiting for the Son of Man to come, we're waiting for the Messiah to come, we're waiting for the Christ to come, we're waiting for this one who is promised to us, the Son of David, the specific descendant of David whose rule is going to last forever, the one who's going to set us free. They they begin to entertain that possibility because they've never seen this kind of power. They've never seen this kind of, um, this kind of miraculous uh, thing before. And this is, like, so I think it's similar for us if we think about that that's where they put their hope. Their hope was entirely on when is the Messiah coming? And, and we're looking for the Messiah and that's who we're hoping for. For us today, that's us hoping for the return of Christ. Maybe talk to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The thing that we're putting our hope in is someday Jesus is coming back. And just like 
us, like we say that, we're always, and we're always looking for it, right? We're always looking for when is he coming back? And, and, and especially in the last year or so, you've heard a lot of people go like, I think he's coming soon. Boy, it's getting bad. Things are getting bad. Things are getting worse and worse. And like I, he's, I think Jesus might come back in my lifetime because things are getting so bad. The, the, the unfortunate thing about that is that Christians have been saying that for centuries, so I don't know. Um, I, we just don't know, but his return is always imminent. We should always put our hope in that, but that was the same for them. They always put their hope in when is Messiah coming the first time? When is, when is, the, is this promised one going to come? And they were always looking for them. And so they had had their hopes dashed before. They had found false messiahs. They had found people who said the right things, who could do powerful supernatural things and they said maybe this is the guy some of them even followed those guys until they died and it got it just dissipated and so when they say can this be the son of david it's not the first time they've said that probably for most of those guys they've wondered this before they'd gotten their hopes up before but they're they're saying this seems different He's teaching in a different way. He's, he's got this crazy supernatural power, miraculous power. He can do these things. Could he be the son of David? The contrast to that is it says, when the Pharisees heard it. Now, notice something there. That it says that Jesus did this and the crowd were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Then it says, when the Pharisees heard it. So it doesn't sound like the Pharisees are standing right there to me. Based on that passage. It says like, sounds like a group of people saw this and then the Pharisees caught wind of it. So think about how that might happen. Think about what the most logical process here is that if you're, if you're just a, a normal Jewish man or woman and, and you witness this and you hear Jesus teaching and you go like, man, I feel like he's, he's fulfilling. Like I heard the, the Pharisees teaching on Isaiah last week and that seems to match up with what this guy's doing. Like, I think he's fulfilling that prophecy. I, I'm going to go ask him. So you run off to the Pharisees and you go, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. What do you think? Could he be the Messiah? That's who you're most likely to ask if you're, if you're one of the, a, a commoner. You're going to go to the religious leader. You're going to go to the people that might know. You're going to go to the synagogue and start asking questions. Could this be the guy? So the Pharisees catch wind of this situation. They catch wind that Jesus is doing these things and preaching these things. And, and, and they respond decisively. They come and they squash it. And this is why Jesus is so hard on the Pharisees. If we think about why is Jesus so critical of the Pharisees, so hard on the Pharisees, plenty of people doubted him. Even here the crowds aren't, aren't 100%. Yes, he is the son of David. Right? They're just saying, could he be? But Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees because they were the ones who were supposed to be shepherding the people. They were supposed to be pointing the people to the truth, teaching the scriptures faithfully, and they weren't. They don't even investigate here. They just come right out with the easiest possible refutation to who Jesus is, and they say, he's demonic. Right? That's the easiest thing to do. If someone has supernatural power that you can't deny, it's, people saw it happen, people know that he healed this guy, people know that he cast out these demons, this story's been spreading... Even if they, they only saw this one, they'd heard about the other ones, and now they have evidence that those are true also. So the Pharisees, the only thing they can do in this situation, since they can't say, no, it didn't happen, is they say, it's demonic. 
It's demonic. He's got demonic power because demons have real supernatural power. It's not a crazy thing for them to accuse him of in terms of it's an option. But that's, that's what they jump to is to call him demonic because it's the easiest, most convenient answer. They call him Beelzebul, which is just another name for Satan. It's another name for the prince of demons. So then Jesus launches his defense. And here's his defense. He's kind of four points, roughly. He says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. He presents this basic argument that any kingdom that is united is going to be stronger than if it's divided. That if it's divided, it's going to fall apart. The division within a nation is the greatest threat to that nation. That's a different sermon. Okay. But he, he creates this, he puts this out and says, like, hey, if there's, if there's division in the kingdom, in this demonic kingdom, then they're not going to stand anyway. That has to be true for the kingdom of God and for the demonic kingdom if they're going to have any, they're going to work together. That's why he says Satan's not going to fight Satan. He's not going to fight himself. He's not going to be casting out other demons. They, are, they have a plan. Right? He says they have, they have a plan. They understand why they are where they are. And they're not going to go casting each other out. They're going to be working together. And then his third point is, he says basically like, how do y'all cast out demons then? Okay, if I, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then, then how do y'all do it? How do you do it? How do, he says specifically, how do your sons do it? But he's basically saying, you all do this too, so how do you do it? If I do it by the power of Satan, then how do you do it? Because they actually did it. They did practice exorcism. The Jews practiced exorcism, at least from the time of Solomon. We don't have a lot of evidence of this in, in Scripture, but extra-biblical evidence, evidence outside of Scripture, tells us about this history. So there's a, a famous um, first-century uh, historian named Josephus, and he writes about this process that he witnessed. He witnessed how they did this. And it's a really complex process. I put it in the study guide if you want to check it out. It's not worth, like, really getting into. It's not, like, something you're going to do or anything like that. But he lays out this process that supposedly came down from Solomon. Now, we can't say for sure that that's what happened. But it seems that they did practice this form of exorcism. Um, they just weren't as good at it. Right? And it's a really complex process that involves, like, digging up this root and shoving it up someone's nose and all this stuff. It's, it's weird, okay? And it's just a long process that they had to go through to make this happen. So Jesus is saying, like, you guys have a really hard time doing this. Like, it, it's a long process. You have to find these weird plants and all this stuff. Like, it's, it's this weird process. I just say it and they go. Right, so he's pointing to the fact that he has, he's just better at it than they are. And if they're, if they're going to accuse him of this, he can easily flip that around and, call, and accuse them of it as, as well. Um, and so then he, but then he flips the question around and he says, but what if, I, what if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God? What if I do it by the power of the Spirit? What if I'm actually on God's side? He said, in that case... The kingdom of God has come upon you. If I do it by the, by the power of the Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's asking them to consider the implications of his power. He's telling them, like, you've rushed to this judgment. You need to step back and consider the implications of what I've done here. You need to get step back and consider what I might be pointing to. 
Because if you're wrong, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's a big time, that's a big difference. Right? That's a 180 degree difference of you're calling me demonic, but what if the opposite is true? You need to stop and consider that. And that's ultimately the question that all who encounter Jesus are forced to reckon with, is what if it's all true? What if he is who he says he is? What if he is the way, the truth, and the life? What if he's the only way of salvation, the only way that we can have peace with God? What if that's true? Because it's the only option is, is one or the other. All right, we, there's a famous saying that there, you only have three options with Jesus. When you encounter Jesus, if you really consider him for who he is, that you can only conclude that he's either a liar, the, the things that he said he just lied about, in which case, he can't be this good teacher. Right? That's what a lot of people try to say. They're like, oh, yeah, I like Jesus. He's got some good teaching. He's a, like a good teacher, a good guy. He like pointed people toward good things. No, not, not, with, not saying these things. Not saying things like, the kingdom of God has come upon you if I cast out demons by the power of God. He can't just be a good, good teacher. So he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, that's the second option, that he's a crazy person that didn't know what he was saying because he was just deluded and out of his mind. Or he is Lord, liar, lunatic, or Lord. He actually is who he says he is. He's our Lord and Savior. He's the one who should be worshipped. He is the King of kings, and his kingdom will reign forever. And he's the one we'll ultimately answer to. And he died for us and rose again on our behalf that we might have peace with God, might find forgiveness from our sins. And if we choose to submit to him, to call him our Lord, to find our salvation in him because he offers us forgiveness for free. That that is what the question we have to reckon with. Is, is that true or not? It's the question that he's asking the Pharisees to reckon with. What if I do it by this power? What if you're wrong? Because Jesus was on... Uh, so th another thing that Jesus puts out here is he, he kind of gives some insight into his demonic, uh, his power over demons. Right? He gives us insight into this incredible power that he has over these demonic forces. And then he lays out this argument about the strong man in verse... Uh, verse 29. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? He puts out this case that's basically like breaking and entering 101, right? He's saying, if you're going to break into somebody's house, if there's someone there that can defend that house, that's either like a, like a strong man you can contend with it in our day, we'd say, unless there's a, a man with a gun or something, like there's somebody that can defend the house, you got to deal with that guy first, you got to deal with that, that man or, or armed woman, either one. Like, you got to deal with the person who can defend the house first. And then you can plunder their goods. And so he's essentially saying, I did it. I did that. I dealt with him. I dealt with him, so now I'm in charge. So you can point to, like, when did he do that? If he's talking about binding Satan, what did, when did he do that? When did he bind the strong man? And the best case we can make is that he's talking about his time in the wilderness, that he defeated Satan in the wilderness when he was tempted by him. The fact that he did not give in to that temptation meant that he bound Satan. Satan had no power over him. So he could do whatever he wanted because he was sinless. So he had ultimate authority over demonic powers. We also see that 
Jesus' mission here, right? That he's really speaking into his mission, and this really speaks to why he was so worked up over this. Because his mission was to do these things. He came to fulfill prophecy like this in Isaiah chapter 49, 25 through 26. Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am Yahweh, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. <clears throat> Most people, when they read that in Jesus' day, they, they assumed he was talking about an earthly enemy. They assumed he was talking about earthly battles, battles against flesh and bone. But we see here that he's talking about in in a different plane. He's talking about a war between kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the demonic kingdom, that this is where he's at war. And these are the captives that he's setting free. It's like this, this man who was oppressed by this demon. That these are the ones that he is going to, to, um, to rescue. He's going to contend with those who contend with you on this greater level, this more important level than earthly battles. Jesus responds so forcefully because they're accusing him of the opposite of what he came to do. He came to defeat Satan's sin and death, and yet they accused him of being on that side. They're accusing him of using Satan's power when he, in fact, came to fight that very power. This is kingdoms at war, and he, they're accusing him of being on the other side. So that's why he ends with saying, are you with me? He's asked this question of those who, are, those who are with me, are not with me, are against me. Those who do not gather with me scatter. He's saying you only have, there are only two sides. This is a war. These are kingdoms at war, and there are only two sides, the kingdom of God and the demonic kingdom. And you've got to decide what side you're on. Move next here to verses 31 and 32. Unforgivable. He says this, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be, the, will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, I, want to, I, I kind of set these two verses out in this section because I know these are verses that freak people out. Uh, this terrify people, this idea, because it's talking about, hey, everything can be forgiven except for this thing. And you go like, whoa, what if I did that? What if I did that? So let's get in, let's break it down a little bit here. First of all, we need to think about what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, in Jesus' day, the, the only thing they really understood about the Holy Spirit, we understand a little more now in the New Testament era, in the, the New Covenant era, but uh, at their time, they really under, understood that he was the way that God's truth was conveyed and the way that God's truth was understood, that he was what, who empowered God's messengers and then also enabled hearers to understand and absorb that truth. So he was this conveyor of truth. And it is the Spirit, we, we know today, that it's the, it is by the, the Holy Spirit that reveals God to the hearts of men and women. We see things like in, this in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, where Paul says, our gospel came to you not only in word, 
but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Saying when the gospel comes to somebody, it's not just the words, but it's this Holy Spirit power that comes into them, and that's what convicts them and allows them to understand and accept the gospel. So if we understand that, then to deny the Holy Spirit or to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to call him something that he's not, to deny the Holy Spirit is to deny the gospel. Or at the very least, to deny the means by which we understand the gospel and can receive the, Holy, the gospel. That if you deny the Holy Spirit, then you can't receive the grace that is offered. Kind of speaks to this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, where it says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? He's talking about here people that, that hear the gospel but just trample it underfoot, that don't accept it, that reject it instead. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like it, if you were in the desert, you were you get stranded in the desert, and you're walking through, and, and you're out of water, you're dying of thirst, and someone comes along and they say, listen, here, here's enough water, and there's enough water in this bottle to get you to the next town, and you can be saved. You can get, get there and get provisions and everything, but here, here's this bottle of water, and they give it to you, and you leave, and then they leave. You receive that bottle of water, and you look at it, and you decide... I think this bottle is full of poison. So you don't drink it. That's what it's like to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's to reject the very thing that could save you. To call it something that it's not. And to say, no, this isn't good. The other option is to open that and drink it and be saved and go. And, and you can make it. That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So it's not something that got two important notes that I want to make sure we understand here. Number one, you're not going to do this on accident. Sometimes people, when they hear about this and they understand, like, oh, blaspheme the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin, they go like, what if I did it at some point? I've said a lot of things, man. I don't, I don't know. I say all kinds of stupid things, and especially in my old life, and I would, you know, be under the influence of things, and I don't know what I said, and like, maybe I said something terrible about the Holy Spirit, and and I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and I, I'm toast. What if I did it? It's not something you're doing on accident. It's not something you're going to do on accident. And then two, it's not a one-and-done situation. It's not a one-and-done situation. It's not like, oh, well, in my past life, I said something bad, and then I came to Christ, and I, and I was convicted, and I gave my life to Jesus. But does that old thing that I said, does that disqualify me? No. No. In fact... I would argue that if you can be worried about this passage, then you don't have to worry about this passage. If you can be worried about these verses, then you don't have to worry about these verses. All right, look at the last section here, verses 33 through 37. Good fruit. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
So Jesus tells them to make up their mind. He says, listen, call me good or bad, but like make up your mind. Either call the tree good and it's fruit good or call the tree bad and it's fruit bad, but you got to decide. You can't keep mixing this up and deciding that the things that I do are good, but I'm bad or vice versa. You got to judge me appropriately. You got to judge me by my actions and my words. He asked them specifically, he says, like, judge me by my fruit. Judge me by what I do. And judge me by the things that I say. Judge me. Imagine having that kind of confidence. That, that alone, that confidence shows that he, is, that he is innocent, right? That he is sinless. Because he can say, like, you can go through all of my records. Go through everything that I have. Like, you can audit me all you want. I'm going to come out clean. So judge me. Judge me appropriately. And then he starts to turn this around on them. And he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He calls, well, he calls them a brood of vipers, right? He kind of flips it around on them because he goes, listen, you can judge me all you want for exactly who I am, but you're not really capable of it because you are evil. He calls them a brood of vipers. He says, you're a bunch of snakes. He flips it around on them. And, and he had asked them to judge him by his deeds, and now he'll judge them by their words and deeds. So I'm going to judge you. If you, you can judge me, you are judging me. You've got to do it consistently because you're not. But then it's going to turn around on me judging you. And you can't stand up to this because you are evil. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This can be an unsettling truth for us to accept, right? The idea that the things that we say are an overflow of our heart. It's not how we want to think about the things that we say, right? We often, certainly not when we slip up. Right? When we slip up, we say something we shouldn't have said, say something mean, say something that, that hurts somebody. We want to go, well, that wasn't me. Well, these words, these are, that's over here. I, that's not who I am. That's not how I feel. That's not really my heart. That's, I don't know where that came from. Boy, I must have ate something weird. Right? We like to separate ourselves from our sin in that way. But Jesus says, no, no. The things that you say, they're an overflow of your heart. They come out. They come spilling out of what's inside of you. He says this, uh, the Apostle James testifies to this truth as well in James chapter 3, 5 through 10. He says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. He says, ultimately, the, the problem is not with our tongues, but with our hearts. Jesus point, James points to the problem of, like, the things that we say. We just, like, can't seem to stop it. But Jesus says it's not about just that comes out. It doesn't just come out of your tongue. It comes out of your heart. It's an overflow of what's inside of us that we're crooked deep down, and occasionally it spills out. So then he makes these kind of frightening statements where he says by your words you will be condemned and by your words you'll be justified he says by your words you'll be condemned 
he's pointing to the fact that these, the Pharisees have responded to this exorcism carelessly. He says they've not considered it critically. They've not considered it prayerfully. They've not really stopped and gone, wait, what does this mean? What could this mean? They blaspheme the Holy Spirit by calling it demonic. And I want you to notice that they didn't have to jump to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah based on this one incident. They didn't have to decide at that moment, like, yes, okay, he is the Messiah. We're going to follow him 100%. We're on board. He wasn't looking for that. All the, not at this moment. At this moment, look at what the crowd said. All the crowd said is, can this be the son of David? They were opening their hearts to the possibility. They were wanting to search the scriptures and find out, is he fulfilling the things that the Messiah should be doing? Is he teaching the things that God has taught us? And if that's all the Pharisees did, if they had said instead of, oh, no, it's by, it's by the power of Satan that he's doing these things. If instead they had said, let me check it out. Let me investigate it. Let me, let me watch Jesus for a while. Maybe I'll follow him around. I'll be one of these groupies that's following him around in the, in the, from town to town, one of the fan club. I'll follow him around for a while, and I'll search the scriptures, and I'll see, like, maybe he is. Like, well, let's check it out. He seems to be doing something big. But they were too afraid of what it meant for their own positions and power. They were too afraid of what it meant for them that he was going to threaten their position, that it, they just wanted to, to write him off and say, no, he's not, to say he's demonic. That's all he was looking for was for them to stay open to this possibility, to say, let's check it out, let's investigate. And maybe that's where you're at right now. You're like, I don't, yeah, I don't know about Jesus, I'm not sure. Stick around, check it out. Let's get coffee. We'll talk about it. Let's check it out and see, could he be who he says he is? Could he be the Messiah? Could he be our Savior? Because he says in, in, in the flip of, by your words, you'll be condemned, which is a frightening thought, because we all have words, we've all said things that we could be condemned by. We've all done things that would make us guilty, certainly of not being perfect, certainly not of God's standard. So, if, we, if by our words we'll be condemned, what does he mean then by by your words you will be justified? Because I don't know. I don't know if I have enough good words to outweigh the bad. I don't know if I can, can I tip the scales? I'm not really sure. That's how, that's kind of our, our like general cultural version of like, what does it take to get into heaven? People are always kind of thinking of like, do I have, do my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? That's kind of the, the old justice scales. That's how we like to think of it in our culture. That's, that's what's like in cartoons and all that kind of thing, like TV shows. That, that's the, the way that people tend to think of it. It's like, do my good deeds outweigh my If they do, if I can tip the scales, then maybe I'll get into heaven. And I think some, there's a misunderstanding of verses like this where he says, by your deed, words you'll be condemned and by your words you'll be justified. But that's not what he means. He's not saying that your good things, the good things that you've said, the good things that you've done are going to outweigh your bad. He's saying, by your words, you will be justified because literally this is true. But it's by one word. It's by one sentence. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where he says this. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So it's by your words you'll be justified, but by this word, by what do you say about Jesus? Is he your Savior and Lord? Do you confess that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe it in your heart? Are you willing to say it out loud? Are you willing to stand up and say, yes, I am with Jesus. I pledge my allegiance to him first and foremost. I follow him first and foremost. He is my Lord. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. Confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior are the most important words that we'll ever speak. We'll wrap up with this. How should we then live? Three takeaways for today's message. Number one, consider your reactions to Jesus. Whether you're a follower of him or whether you're still thinking about it and looking into it, what is your reaction to Jesus? How do you respond to the things that he's done, the things that he's said? Both in scripture and in people's lives. How do you respond to when, when God changes a life? Even believers, sometimes we see Jesus work in the lives of someone and, and it's someone we never thought that would be the case and be critical and doubtful of whether that's true. Number two, we allow the Holy Spirit to convict you. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart. He's active in our lives. He'll illuminate truth to us. He'll, he'll call out sin in us that we might change. And number three, examine what your words say about the state of your heart. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What, what do the things that I say say about my heart? When we have those slip-ups, when we accidentally say something that we didn't want to say, what does it say about what's inside of us? Can we examine our heart? Can we ask the Holy Spirit to examine that part of us that we might change? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we can dig into your word. We thank you for these strong words of yours because, of yours because you got set off by these Pharisees and this terrible thing that they've said. But we thank you for the truth that you revealed to us that could be recorded in the book of Matthew here, that we might know the truth, that it might change us. God, may we respond to you when you, when you move in our lives, that when your Holy Spirit speaks to us, may we respond. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.